Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. Recently in South African news, uh, probably I think one of the most consequential pieces of legislation that may uh, come through our government is the National Health Insurance. Uh, this is a bill which will significantly alter the way that healthcare is in South Africa. And I think it's something that we should all be really concerned about and we should really try to educate ourselves on. But at the same time, I think one of the inherent issues with bills like this is that it's very, very complex. It's not something we like to worry about. I think most of us, when we sign up for health insurance, we sign the contract, we do the monthly payments, and we just hope we never have to actually use it at the end of the day. So it's a terrible contradiction. So hopefully today uh, we'll all be a little bit more enlightened after listening to this and, and hear really what the NHI is about. and and why it would be quite disastrous for the country. So I'd like to welcome onto the show the director of the Free Market Foundation, Jason Erbach. Jason, how are things on your side? Very good, thanks. Thank you for having me on your show today, Nicholas. No problem, no problem at all. So let's start off basically, you know, I think a lot of South Africans may have heard the term NHI, uh, but I'll just add familiar with it. I think, I, you know, this is not the most exciting topic to talk about, as I'm sure you, you understand, unless you're a bit of a political junkie. Um, so, so yeah. let's just let's just talk about quickly what what exactly is the NHI uh, and and how would it work in in what they've proposed so far in the legislation? Okay, um, you raised some really interesting points in your introduction, and I'd really like to come back to the process on um, how we are at the current point with the NHI bill. So currently, it's been approved by cabinet and it's um, uh, about to be uh, set before parliament. But to get back to your question, what is NHI? Well, I think let's use the kind of official definition from the Department of Health, and we can use that as our departure point, and we can start unpacking some of the details around uh, what was contained in the draft NHI bill. Um, so basically, the, the Department of Health says that it's a financing system that's designed to pool funds to provide access to quality, affordable personal health services for all South Africans based on their health needs, irrespective of their socioeconomic status. NHI is intended to ensure that the use of health services does not result in financial hardship for individuals and their families, and it seeks to realize the, the goal of universal health coverage for all South Africans. And this means that South Africa will have the right to access comprehensive healthcare services free of charge at the point of use at accredited health facilities such as clinics, hospitals, and private health practitioners. This will be done using an NHI card and the services will be delivered closest to where the people live or work. And um, that all sounds really great in, in practice. And I mean, if you can argue against it, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's something that um, I struggle with on a daily basis, like saying, okay, well, here's the government and it's offering free healthcare for, for everybody. Um, I think the important points to, to draw out from that definition is that it's a single payer model uh, that's publicly financed and administered and um, it will provide this kind of comprehensive package of service benefits that it's that's the language that it always uses in, in the various uh, policy documents but essentially it's going to introduce price controls on all health services medicines and other products and it will also control every aspect of medical care from the treatment protocols to be followed uh, to the medicines to be used and the health uh, technologies to be permitted so basically, um, there's going to be some nameless, faceless bureaucrats sitting up in Pretoria that's going to be making all of your healthcare decisions. And why are we doing this? Well, the former Minister of Health, Aaron Mutsaledi, was always at, uh, went to great pains and great lengths to say, well, this is a, um, a, a kind of, um, because we are signatory of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, 
um, the country's obliged to introduce national health insurance uh, because there's this goal that um, every single nation has to have universal health coverage by 2030. And he was very good at using the terms uh, national health insurance and universal health coverage interchangeably. But we know from the World Health Organization that it's, um, these, are, these two terms are not interchangeable. So um, you don't necessarily have to adopt a single payer model where the government is the, in control of, of all of your kind of healthcare decisions from the cradle to the grave. Um, it, it leaves a lot of latitude to say how you, you're going to achieve this um, goal of universal health coverage. Um, so essentially, I think the, the most important point to kind of draw out here is that it's, it's going to create this, this centralized national health insurance fund and that is going to be another state-owned entity, so it's very similar to how ESCOM is now. And um, it's, it's basically going to, going to be the, the entity that's going to purchase the, the health services for the, the public and private sector. And um, I think it's ironic that the government's actually said that ESCOM's too large and needs to be broken up into kind of various, you know, the generation transmission and, and distribution sectors, but now it's trying to introduce this massive behemoth that's going to be um, an order of magnitude that's probably like four or five times greater than the size of ESCOM if we look at all of the, the financial implications of, of adopting the NHI. Uh, so that's basically what, um, you know, the kind of official definition of national health insurance is. So I want to ask quick, because uh, you didn't mention it was a kind of single payer system, but at the same time, you know, precisely what this will look like in relation to the private sector and private medical aid schemes has been a bit blurry. I think I've heard about two or three different views on exactly what that would be. Um, you know, just this is just listening to government officials being interviewed on the radio and you know, the CEO of Discovery Health, I think, came out and he said he supported this, which I don't know, was a little bit confusing for me. I'm not quite sure how, what sort of <laughs> reasons he would have for that. Um, are we going, in this case in South Africa, on a similar model to a country like uh, Canada or Britain, which already has a single payer model? Is it going to look something like that or is this something that we've never really seen before? No, it's very much in line with what we see in, in Britain and Canada. So it's, it's that single... Uh, purchaser and payer that basically controls all of your healthcare services. So um, it's it's the price of medicines, and we'll get onto this uh, later on um, in the discussion, hopefully. So what it actually, what are the implications for, for um, purchasing, acting as a single purchaser and purchasing medicines, and um, all of your healthcare products. So it's it also kind of dictates what the treatment protocols are going to be for um for certain medicines and certain procedures and things like that. So it's, and, and as well as the health technology. So it's, it's very similar to um, what we see in, in, in the UK, for example, where they've got this oxymoronically named the National Institute for Clinical Excellence that um, sounds very Orwellian and it is because it, it basically decides uh, whether you, that you're gonna live or die. People often refer to it as a death panel where someone sits and decides, okay, uh, what kind of medicine are you gonna have and is it cost effective and, and completely removes that decision from the individual. So yes, that's, it's very much a command and control strategy. And, um, you know, if you kind of think about it in the grand scheme of things in South Africa at the moment with where we're kind of approaching this fiscal cliff, it just makes absolutely zero economic sense. And it is a purely ideologically uh, driven uh, initiative. And 
You know, I came across this really interesting quote from um, Paul Starr, who is the Princeton professor, and in his book, he was talking, the book was called The Social Transformation of American Medicine, and he says that um, whoever provides medical care or pays the cost of illness stands to gain the gratitude and goodwill of the sick and their families. The prospect of these goodwill returns to the investment in healthcare creates a powerful motive for governments and other institutions to intervene in the economics of medicine. Political leaders since Bismarck seeking to strengthen the state or to advance their own or their party's interests have used insurance against the cost of sickness as a means of turning benevolence to power. And I thought that was, it kind of was an aha moment for me because all of this time we've been talking about, you know, kind of practical implications of adopting the national health insurance and the, and the consequences, which I think are entirely predictable. So we're going to see under NHI a deterioration in the, in the quality um, of healthcare provision in the country. I definitely think we're going to see more healthcare professionals leave the country. And I think it's essentially going to create this um, bureaucracy that is going to be entirely incapable of handling the, the huge volume of, of claims. So I think that that quote by, by Paul Star really brought home to me um, what exactly the government's intentions are behind national health insurance. And it's certainly not to improve the quality of healthcare to the poorest uh, individuals in the country. It is simply another grasp at power and uh, to, you know, control the commanding heights of the economy. Yeah, I think it's very interesting when you consider in the context of the National Democratic Revolution, the ANC's ideology, um, in which they're trying to gradually get more and more control, uh, get more and more power into the state, what this kind of looks like. And I, I do fear that this is something which is which is ideologically driven completely. And because, it, like you said, it doesn't really sound realistic. And I suppose we'll get to the funding part of it just now. Um, I want to quickly ask, um, so will this completely wipe out all sort of private sector involvement in the health industry in South Africa? Or will, be, will there be any other uh, private you know, health insurance still existing after this gets implemented? Well, the great irony of this is that um, it's actually going to increase in quality <laughs> in, oh, really? in the country because, <laughs> yeah, because what happen, what, what's going to happen is that, um, you know, it's, the government has slowly but surely been tightening the screws on the private medical scheme market in the country for years. So, Think about the reduction in the medical scheme tax credits, which was originally a tax deductible, and then they kind of shifted it to a, a tax credit. Um, now, every single time they tighten the screws there, we see more and more people uh, drop out of the medical scheme market, and um, it, it prevents new entrants from entering into the market. So think about that for a second. So um, if, if the government can effectively raise the prices of, of, of medical scheme membership, and I'll get onto some of the um, the regulations that is put in place. And considering that private med medical schemes are the main vehicle for accessing the provision of um, services within the private sector, if it can collapse the, the private medical scheme market, well then it's it's basically done its job because the private medical scheme um, sector will just kind of collapse on its own. So let's let's talk about um, some of the things that it's done in the in the private medical scheme market. Yeah. So if if it, if it increases the cost, say, by, by reducing the, the, the medical scheme tax credit, then people who perceive themselves to be healthier um, will, will simply drop out of the market, right? Because they, they, they can't afford. And Econex had, had, had did, did some modeling a few years ago where they said that um, 
if, if the medical scheme tax credits removed in its in an entirety, then about two million people will drop out of the medical scheme market, which is about twenty percent of the of the current um, number of people that are that are enrolled in private medical schemes. Now, that's one way of of reducing the the private medical scheme market. But another way is introducing regulations, and we know that. Um, the government introduced by the Medical Schemes Act of 1998, um, this really draconian kind of idea that the government should be able to decide what freely contracting individuals, um, what regulates them. So, so it introduced this this kind of idea of so-called social solidarity into the medical scheme market, and basically it ushered in several main changes. The, the first was open enrollment and uh, community rating, and then it also introduced a thing called statutory solvency requirements, as well as um, prescribed minimum benefits, which I think um, a lot of your listeners may be aware of. But each of these um, regulations basically increased the price of medical scheme membership. Um, so for example, let's let's just focus on prescribed minimum benefits, because I think most people will be familiar with those. Yeah, now, yeah. the average price of the is about 805 rand. That, that's on average. Um, and the prescribement of benefits is basically a, a kind of package of benefits that consists of about 270 diagnosis and treatment pairs, which is just kind of the lingo for saying, okay, um, what's what's the kind of... Um, this is what's included uh, in your health, in your medical aid scheme. That's basically it. Yeah, so every single one has... Every single benefit option, irrespective of which one you're enrolled in, has to... Um, Provide the, provide the PMBs. Um, now, when you consider that it costs on average 804 rand on average, it's already blowing out uh, your the bottom end of your your potential medical scheme membership. And these are the people that tend to be um, younger, healthier individuals um, that will typically cross subsidize the older, sicker individuals in your medical in, in the various benefit options um, under this community rating system. Now, you can imagine that most people just are unable to afford that. So the, the medical scheme market in South Africa is already artificially restricted just by the regulation. So, and that's a major problem because you want to have as many people as possible covered by a private medical scheme um, arrangements so that it reduces the, the burden on the state. But instead of kind of expanding the role of, of private medical scheme in South Africa, it's the, the government's actually moving in the opposite direction. It's trying to kind of destroy the, the private medical scheme market. And it's not only restricted to that. There's also um, private insurance, which is um, different to, to private medical scheme markets because it was um, covered by, by different acts. So um, medical schemes are covered by the Medical Schemes Act of 1998, which has this kind of idea of social solidarity underpinning it. But then we also have had private insurance in the past, which is kind of your um, hospital cash cashback plans and things like that, um, that were covered by the Short and Long Term Insurance Act. Now the government has basically put a moratorium on on all of those insurance products and has prevented people from from entering into into that market because it was saying, okay, it's unfair that the insurance market is is covered by the Short and Long Term Insurance Act. And we've got the private medical scheme cover uh, market that's that's covered by the Medical Schemes Act. So it introduced what was known as the demarcation regulations, and this has had a serious detriment, detrimental effect on the number of people that are covered by private insurance options in the country. 
So there's a number of steps that the government ought to be taking to deregulate the um, the private market so that we get more and more people covered by these various um, private options. But as I said, I think the government has, is fundamentally opposed to um, the private sector. And, you know, it's always used as kind of um, language that it's, it's against the commodification of healthcare in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, even Mozzoletti and um, the, the previous health professional council um, president, Kokoki or something, he said private medical schemes are a crime against humanity and an atrocity. I mean, that's <laughs> bizarre. I mean, you can't seriously think something like that unless you have some sort of ideological bias. I mean, you can you can hear it in the sort of things that they say like that, you know. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Now, it's, it's really bizarre thinking because you would hope that you, you would try and relieve the pressure on the public health care sector by encouraging those who can afford to pay for their own medical scheme cover to do so. And and that, I mean, is something that the FMF has, has tried to be pushed push for like a number of years. Um, but we're fighting this ideological battle. It's not a practical or economic uh, battle at all. So I just I just want to ask, because you, you mentioned right at the beginning of that, that you think that the ironic thing about this is that private medical aid schemes will, will be getting better. Um, <laughs> I just wasn't so clear what, what how, how that all fitted in. I was trying to follow there. How exactly will that happen? Sorry, they won't be getting better. No, they'll, they'll be increasingly squeezed out. Oh, okay. I'm I, I out of the market. Yeah. So oh. um, as I, that's the kind of basic premise. If you can get rid of the private financing side of the market, then you just won't be able to access the, the provision side, right? Because private medical schemes are the main vehicle for accessing the provision of services in the country. So if you can squeeze that sector out, um, then you half the job's done. <laughs> yeah. Then, then the government will come along like a knight in shining armor, exactly what they did in, in, in the states and with the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, which is, it's commonly referred to, and say, look, we've got so many people that don't have insurance. The state has to step in and and take control of, of, of the situation. So I think that it's a very um, calculated path ahead of it, and I think it's just going to be a slow but incremental. Um, movement towards restricting the, the, the private sector in the country. Yeah, it's like a very systematic way of, of crowding out. Um, exactly. yeah, okay. Well, that yeah, that doesn't sound good. That's it's, it's very interesting to hear because it sounds almost like on one hand, they won't directly do any means to make uh, private medical schemes illegal, but, but just through regulation and through too much bureaucracy and, and too many new laws about this, Eventually, it'll just become too expensive and it won't be worth the while of, of medical schemes to support this. I mean, this is why I find it bizarre that, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've heard, but I think it was the CEO of Discovery Health. He came onto SAFM the one day for an interview and he said that he was he was broadly in favor of this. I'm not really, that sounds like a bizarre thing to say. Maybe he doesn't fully understand what he's getting himself into or something. Um, okay, in any case, moving on to, I think, a second uh, big issue. We've already mentioned that in terms of money, this is really not even feasible. We have so many state-owned entities that are hugely in debt, and now we'd just be adding an even bigger one, maybe the biggest. I'm not sure if there would be anything that would be bigger than this in terms of government cost. I, I, uh, geez, I cringe to think how much of the fiscus this would take up. Um, but, you know, what is the idea of how they're going to fund this? Is this going to be more from direct taxation, indirect taxation, or VAT? How is it going to work? 
Okay, so just from, from the costing side, so even if we use the government's figures that came out in the green paper all, all of 10 years ago, so that they haven't done any new costing since then, right? It's, and we can only use the, the green paper as the kind of yardstick, but the analysis that they used was completely lacking of kind of any um, logic. But if we use the, the figure that they gave um, of 256 billion back in 2009, we just inflation adjusted up to as many, we're sitting on about 368 billion. But that was assuming that the, that the economy would grow at a rate of three and a half percent per annum. Obviously completely wrong. I mean, we, we, we're struggling to hit half a percent at, at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so um, my own calculations, um, if you kind of use the, the prescribed minimum benefits as your um, kind of departure points, then we get to, so that's basically the, the 800 rand per annum um, multiplied by 12, you get to about 9,600. And if we use the, the 2017 um, uh, population stats, we'll get to a figure of just over 500 billion rand. Now, that's that's probably on the high side, but it's not kind of completely unrealistic um, considering what, what's been happening. Um, now, if you consider the total personal income tax take for 2017, so comparing apples with apples here, was about 300 billion, we start to get some idea of the utility of, of this proposal. So. Your total personal income tax take, which is the government's main source of tax revenue, won't even cover the, the cost of the of the NHI. Um, now, now that that should immediately end the discussion, and yeah. that's exactly what ended the, the discussion in Ireland. You know, Ireland uh, contemplated introducing a, a very similar policy of national health insurance. They got to the white paper phase. Someone did the costing, and they just said, "Hang on, this isn't feasible. Let's go back to the drawing board." Um, so that was interesting. The, there was clearly no kind of ideological bias there. It was a pure economical, rational decision to make. Um, where will the money come from? Well, I mean, if we look at the various policy papers, um, so assuming that we can somehow miraculously raise the, the, the money, which, I mean, is clearly not going to happen. We, we, we can talk about ESCOM and um, the fiscal cliff in, in, in a moment, but the various proposed sources were um, uh, an increase in VAT, a surcharge on taxable income, uh, a payroll tax, or a combination of these three. Now, VAT is definitely off of the table. R remember, um, we had a 1% increase uh, at the beginning of 2018. It was very unpopular. Like 22 billion rand um, in, in extra revenue. Um, and this might be a good point to highlight that Mbawini said he needs about another 128 billion over the next three years just to fund ESCOM. Jeez. But, uh, so. It's like when you hear all I these think, numbers, it just you, you get an idea of how futile it is. Okay, so there's, there's VAT. Sorry, continue. I don't want to interrupt. Yeah, so VAT. Okay, and um, the reason, uh, I mean, I'm not in favor of, of increasing VAT. Obviously, I'm in favor of increasing taxes at all. But um, if you, VAT's a highly regressive tax because it um, disproportionately affects the poor, the poor because whether um, you're rich or poor, the amount that you pay on any given product um, as a percentage of, of its price is, is the same. So if you, so the tax burden in, in simple terms is the same for for um, for for rich or, or large, but it 
forms like a larger pers- a larger um, percentage of a poor person's income. So it's it's really not a good idea to, to increase VAT. Um, and the Davis Tax Committee also came out with the same type of recommendation: don't increase VAT because it's basically going to increase inequality in the country. And I just think the the unions will will pick up with a major fuss if you try to increase uh, VAT at this point. So that basically leaves two funding sources, the, the surcharge on taxable income and the, the payroll tax. Uh, but you and I both know that the surcharge on taxable income has dramatic uh, implications for um, you know, uh, the ability to pursue their goals and for economic growth. So, and we've basically reached the top of the Africa curve in South Africa already. So any additional increases in taxes will actually be reduced the amount of um, income that comes in to the, the fiscus. So, um, can I ask quickly? Has that been observed? Uh, have our latest uh, set of tax increases yielded less tax revenue? Um, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure, but I do know that our our tax to GDP ratio has increased kind of dramatically over the last few years. So it's gone from about twenty two and a half percent, I think, in um, what was it like ninety six, ninety seven, and it's up to about twenty. 6% now. Um, and that's the reason why our Tax Freedom Day has you know, increased from, uh, uh, so there was a decline in about five five days from, from last year to this year, but we've gone down by about 37 days since about 1994. Um, so that has dramatic implications for people's um, you know, in, investing in the economy, whether they're going to open up a new business, there's, there's a lot of implications for that. And the most important thing to point out of, with regards to um, these type of taxes, so um, a payroll tax and a surcharge on taxable income, is that they're a tax on labor. You And South Africa has this massive unemployment problem. Yesterday, the, the Department of Labor released a statistic showing that um, the strict definition of unemployment now, which is the official one, uh, is sitting at 29%, which means that there are over 6 million uh, people that are unemployed in the country now. But, you know, that's not a really good indicator of what's actually happening on the ground because so many people have just simply given up searching for work. So uh, the expanded definition is a much better um, representation of what's actually happening on the ground. And there we see that um, the unemployment rate is actually sitting at 38%, and there are over 10 million unemployed people in the country. And the real devastating thing is that most of these people have been unemployed for over a year, something like 70% of them. And they just have absolutely no chance of entering into the labor market because our labor market policies are so inflexible that it just does not encourage hiring at at the low end of the market. And that's a devastating um, situation for, for the country because our tax base is just so low. So... Um, you know, there are about 20 million people that are registered for personal income tax in the country, but there are only about 5 million people that are paying some, something like 99% of the total personal income tax tax. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm worried about that. That data further, you see that there's something like 700,000 people that are responsible for half of the total personal income tax tax in the country. So it should be clear that one, South Africa has a really narrow tax base, and two, we've got this massive unemployment problem where um, the government should really ought to be introducing policies and institutions that foster um, greater employment growth 
so that we can get the economy growing again instead of sitting with this ticking time bomb where we've got over 10 million people that are um, desperate for employment. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm fully aware of how small our tax base is and it's, it's just something which is so unsustainable and I think we're going to eventually reach a point where uh, we'll realize that it's no longer sustainable. But I mean, it, it, like you said, it's, it's weird that because of how little tax revenue we're getting in relation to our debt, in relation to our failing SOEs, that the government thinks a great idea to do now is to, um, is, is to introduce this massive new bureaucracy for healthcare, which we can't even afford in the first place. Um, it's, a, it's a bizarre idea when you really break it down and you look at all the numbers. Um, but I, you know, I think we've covered it very well. This has been a very heavy episode of the podcast. Um, very complicated stuff. I think I want to, you know, just talk about one last point here, uh, and that's is if we just uh, ignore the NHI for a second, we look at the current system of, of healthcare in South Africa. Um, you know, we have a fantastic private healthcare system as it is. We get African dictators flying here to get surgeries when they can't get them in their own countries, and and things like that. Um, so, but, but however, our public health care, I think we'd all agree, uh, is in vast need of improvement. So I want to ask, you know, um, if we could start off by just trying to currently fix, how, how uh, would you like to change the current healthcare system in South Africa? And more specifically, do you think it would look something like uh, uh, changing it on a very fundamental level? Or is it simply in need of, of more capitalization, of more money? Uh, is it simply lack of resources? That's the problem right now with the, the public sector. No, definitely not. You don't want to be pouring more money into a complete dysfunctional kind of black, black hole. And, uh, so it's, de- it's definitely the underlying institutions. It's the same um, that we face in the rest of the economy. So you have to get those, those basic institutions right. Um, you know, people always talk about how Soros and Boz is going to come and clear out all of the, the corrupt elements within governments, and then everything's going to improve. Well, that's not going to happen. You have to change the underlying institutions. You have to strengthen your rule of law so that it reduces your discretionary power, and which is the real kind of cause uh, of the, the, the corruption in the country. It's the same with regards to healthcare. You've got to remove um, this discretionary power and the amount of power that that central government has in order to make decisions on how um, hospitals are run, etc. So. Um, what we really need is to introduce a situation where um, we actually give control of the hospitals to the people that are currently running them. And at the FMF, we talk about the, the big giveaway. And that will create the incentives for those individuals in order to run uh, the hospitals way more efficiently. So a few years ago, for example, the Department of Health was actually moving in the right direction. We started outsourcing things like security, cleaning, um, the catering, etc. Um, but what did it do? It went and gave all of the contracts to its, its mates and it didn't enforce any of the, the contracts properly. Now, and obviously retained the most critical, which is the, the clinical um, care aspect of it. Now, if you can switch that around and say, okay, the role of, of an efficient government is not to provide the services, it's simply to finance them. So all it has to do is to say, right, um, and this is exactly what happens in the private sector, for example. You know about the division and specialization of labor. Yes. A private hospital doesn't do its own um, security and all that kind of stuff. It puts a, the job out to tender, and whoever does the, um, the job most efficiently and effectively is the person that gets the, the job. And if, it, if it's not fulfilling that task, well, then somebody else comes in and, and steps in. So um, there's a lot of kind of um, things that are going on here, but the most important thing is that uh, there's competition, 
which is not going to happen under uh, national health insurance, where you have this uh, concentration of control at, at central government. Um, but the other important thing, Nicholas, is to have a properly functioning health insurance market, not what we have at the moment, which is effectively a prepaid system of um, insurance. Uh, you want to have a system, and you know it makes intuitive sense for, for people to kind of contribute a regular amount into uh, some type of insurance vehicle to protect themselves against a catastrophic um, outcome. And that's exactly what we see in uh, the car insurance, the house insurance, the various types of insurance um, markets. But for some reason, people view healthcare as completely differently. And you have to have these social solidarity principles thrown in where the young and healthy cross-subsidize the, the elderly and sick and all of that. And that just destroys the, the entire insurance market. And when you've got the government making decisions um, and introducing things like prescribing and benefits that are really political decisions as opposed to economic decisions, well, then that's when the, the market starts collapsing and falling apart. So you have to introduce a, a system where individuals are rated according to their risk and they pay premiums commensurate with those risk outcomes. That's, that's the first thing. You have to deregulate both the funding side, so get that property functioning insurance market going, and then you also have to deregulate the, the provision of services. So here, for example, um, we've got things like certificates of need, where you can't add on an extra hospital bed, you can't add on an extra wing, um, basic things like bringing in new technologies without saying to the government, um, and kind of, uh, it's a box ticking exercise, where um, you have to, to, to demonstrate that there's sufficient need within your geographical catchment area in order to do that. So that has dramatic implications for what um, happens on the provision side. So it even goes so far as to say, okay, what kind of new hospitals and things are, are, are coming into an area? I'll give you an example. A few years ago, um, a group of doctors approached us for, for help in completing the certificate of need um, exercise, and they went a hospital by uh, Otambo International Airport and they wanted to cater for what's referred to as medical tourism. So these are people that are coming into South Africa, they're having a procedure done and then they're going to take them kind of on a safari or something like that. So the government comes along and says, well, what's your geographical catchment area and who are you going to service? And it was just a complete uh, misunderstanding of what um, these guys using their own money and their own capital were going to do and what their idea was and, and which kind of uh, market they were going to service. So eventually they didn't get the, the license for the hospital. Now that's obviously a, a major problem because you want to increase the, the number of hospitals to increase the number of comp competition. And that is what's actually going to drive down prices in the market. But we've got all of these artificial barriers that are put in place by government that are artificially raising the price of, um, of cover in the country and um, you know, hampering uh, access to good quality healthcare in the country. Yeah, well, I think, you know, this is a, a bit of a sad and depressing story, like a lot of under industries in, in South Africa, in which it's just hampered so much by government regulation, by red tape. I mean, that's quite an interesting story, but you, you mentioned about medical tourism. I had no idea that that uh, actually existed and that these guys were trying to build a hospital around there. It sounds like a very, very interesting idea and a great idea, a great entrepreneurial, you know, it's it's in the spirit of, of creating a new business, essentially. I mean, we, we tend not to see healthcare in that sort of way. 
but you think about how many jobs could have been created just from building of a hospital and employing people at the hospital uh, and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think like you told me before, it's a bit of a, a dim view on, on, on what's going to happen. But I, I hope the people that listen to this will just, you know, be uh, energized to really fight this thing as hard as we can. I think in South Africa, you know, uh, despite the problems that we currently have with our healthcare system, even in the private sector, it still is one of our, our better points uh, when you look at other countries in Africa, other developing countries. Um, so, you know, to lose this would be would be quite a disaster. So anyway, uh, Jason Erbach, thank you very much for coming on the Rational Standard Podcast. Uh, if we want to reach you, uh, what social media profiles do you want to promote yourself real quick? All the Free um, Market Foundation. I'm not a big social media. <laughs> um, I leave that up to my colleagues, Martin and Chris, but I do have a Twitter handle, which for the life of me, I can't remember what it is. But um, if you want to contact me by email, it's just Jason Erbach, spelled with two S's, at fmfsa.org. And uh, yeah, uh, you can also contact me via the, the FMF. Um, the landline number there is 011-884-0270. Yeah, and, and follow Free Market Foundation on Twitter. It's a great organization that, that fights stuff like this and I think does a lot of good work in the country. Uh, anyway, thanks for listening to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. Uh, as usual, uh, you can give us a like on Facebook. Check our articles out at www.rationalstandard.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Rational Stand or myself at Nick Babaya. I'll always be putting out new episodes uh, on my Twitter feed and on Facebook. But until then, we'll see you next time.